All right, so starting off the flying podcasts with the first episode. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about is the FAA requirements. So just a kind of quick outline of this episode. The first thing I'm going to be talking about is the types of different training that you can go through to get your private pilot's license, because this is what I have the experience doing. The next thing I'm going to talk about is the requirements, so like what you have to go through test-wise and like how many hours you have to have doing everything. And then the last part of this episode is actually just going to be what you can do after you get your private pilot's license to either keep learning or what kind of privileges it lets you have just practically going around and doing what you want to do. Alright, so the first thing that I'm really going to go through in this is the different types of training. So, when you are looking for a flight school, there are two different types. There's what's called a Part 61 and a Part 141. So, these numbers, they just have to do with the rules and the regulations that the FAA gives out. But what the difference really is, is in a Part 61, everything is a lot less structured and it's more just kind of you can go and do what you need to do and get all the lessons done that you're going to need to fly. But at a 141, everything is a lot more structured. And what I mean by that is to be a part 141, a school has to make a curriculum and send it to the FAA and the FAA has to approve the curriculum and then come back and then the school has to do this. So what this means is that the requirements for getting the license are a little bit different, but I'm going to get into that in the next section. But from what I've seen between the two different flight schools, a part 141 is more like a big business, uh, like a corporation kind of thing where they can, where they have multiple locations and it's a, it's a company. It's not just a one-off. And uh, part 61 is more of like a mom and pop kind of organization going on with maybe less resources at their disposal. And this is the reason is because they didn't have to go to the FAA to get a curriculum done. But both of them are going to work out in the end. So it's really up to you and what kind of learner you are. Because at my school, it's a part 141. From day one, I saw the curriculum and I saw every single lesson, what I was going to be doing, when I was going to be doing stuff. And I personally thought that that helped me a lot. But again, you really don't have to do that. If you think you're better off going in and kind of not knowing what's going on or like having a lesser idea, you're going to get through all the same stuff. And in the end, you're going to come out with the same license. So it's all up to you and what's going to work out better for you. So part 141's just another thing about them is that sometimes if you are trying to get financial assistance, so if you're trying to get like a scholarship or money from it, which is pretty difficult to do, sometimes they require you to do a part 141 school, or if you're planning to go to the airlines and stick with it a bunch of, for a long time and make a career out of it, they might prefer a 141 and part 141s go all the way through to 
your CFI, so it's not just a private pilot and then you have to switch off, like my school that I go to. You can get your CFI, which is your instructor's license. So you can theoretically go from where I am now to teaching in a couple of years and then work your way up to the airlines from there without ever leaving the school. I'm also going to talk about the different types of airports that you can train at here. And in the end, it really doesn't matter. And there are pros and cons to anything. But the two big types of airports are towered and untowered. So towered means there's an air traffic controller there, or ATC, and they're telling you what to do. So when you're on the ground, you say, I'm here, I want to go to the runway, can I go, essentially? And they're going to say, yeah, go this way. So they're going to give you directions for how to get there. And then once you get there, you're going to be like, can I take off? And they're going to say yes. So at an untowered airport, there is no ATC there. So there's a lot more coordination between all the pilots there. So when you're there, you have to announce where you are and what you're planning to do so that everyone else around you knows what you're doing. So the benefits to working at a towered airport and getting your license there is your towers can be pretty intimidating, especially starting off or if you don't really know tons about them. But if you're training at a towered airport, it becomes less and less of a big deal because you have to do it so often. And usually they're a little bit crazier. So there's a lot more activity going on and that's why they have a tower. So I specifically am out of Morristown. So at Morristown, there's a bunch of private jets and I, as in my tiny little plane, have to go on the same runways as them and use the same area. And that kind of thing really doesn't happen at an untowered airport because they really need someone to keep that kind of stuff organized and just kind of help with that. But if you're at an untowered airport, the benefit is that you're probably going to be able to go by yourself a little bit earlier because it's calmer. And what that means is that you might be able to build your confidence up a little bit earlier because it's kind of similar to driving in a car with someone else and then going by yourself for the first time you're pretty nervous when you go by yourself for the first time. And in a way, it's a little bit of like a, can I do this kind of thought, but it's also like a, just being nervous about doing it for the first time by yourself. So if you're doing it at an untowered airport and you can kind of get that done a little bit earlier and keep in mind, it's not gonna be huge, but if you can do that a little bit earlier, you might be able to get your confidence up a little bit more and that may help you in the long run and you're gonna be a little bit more comfortable with the procedures at an untowered airport than you are at a towered airport, which means that you might get intimidated the first time you go to a towered airport, which you're gonna eventually have to do, especially where we are in New Jersey, just because of how crowded everything is and the amount of airports and the amount of people. But yeah, those are the big pros and cons of each. And again, it's up to you which one you want. Right around where we are, we have Morristown, and then there's an airport in Somerset, and that's a grass strip, which, again, you can do. That's a little bit less practical than a paved runway, just because 
There's a lot less going on in most of the planes that go out there. You're not going to be able to fly with a regular private pilot's license. You need a special endorsement, and those are tailwheel planes. But you can go there. There's another one called Solberg, which is in Hunterdon County. And that's another big place of flying that people go to. And there's a lot of stuff around here and a lot of places that you can go, and they all have their pluses and minuses, but they're all going to work out just fine. So the next thing that I'm really going to talk about is the number of hours and test requirements and that kind of thing that you have to do to get your private pilot's license. So remember that it's going to be a little bit different based on what kind of school you go to, but I'm going to go through both of them. So the first one that I'm going to go through is a part 141 school. So remember that's the really structured one where they have to get the curriculum sent to the FAA and then follow it. So. The first thing that I'm going to talk about is the minimums, and keep in mind that that is, again, not what people usually go through. So, the absolute minimum for a Part 141 school is 35 flight hours. So, I'm going to go through it in kind of the order that you would usually go through it. So, 20 of those 35 hours have to be dual instruction. So, what that really means is that there's an instructor next to you and you're learning from him in the plane. So of those, three of them have to be at night, which is an hour after the sun goes down. Three of them have to be cross-country, which means that you're on a flight that's longer than 15 nautical miles. And three of those hours have to be instrument, using instruments. So what that means is that they put like a cover over your eyes so that you can't see out of the plane at all. And you have to fly solely based on your instruments. So it's a, so then the next thing is it's kind of they try to put all this together. So when you're night flying, you're going to do 10 takeoffs and landings. And these specifically have to be to a complete stop instead of say a touch and go where you can where you don't actually stop. So the next thing that you're going to go through is once you get through all that dual instruction at my school, I had to pass like a, a mini test before they let me solo for the first time. So soloing, you're gonna have to do five hours of soloing at a part 141, and you're gonna have to do three cross-country solo hours. So solo just means that there's no longer an instructor by you. So the next thing that I'm gonna go through is part 61, and really the only difference here is that instead of five hours of solo flight time total, you have to do 10. So that means that the total hours are gonna go up to 40 instead of 35 that you have to go through. But this isn't a big deal because the average student, I believe takes somewhere around 60 hours to complete all this. So the next step, which again, the order of this is a little bit different for every single person, but I took my written test, which is on a computer, it's a theoretical, not like a theoretical based test. It's not any practical. So I took that towards the end of my flight training before I soloed, but some people take it before they start. It's all up to you. But to take that written test, you need 25 hours of ground time. I took a three day weekend course where it was like eight hours a day or something crazy like that. And that's how I just kind of reviewed everything and went through it all. 
but you need to get an 80 on that test, which is not too bad. There's a, a lot of help online and there's question banks that you can go through and there's a lot of practice stuff that you can go through. But the big thing that you really need to go through, the big test, is what's called a check ride. So there's actually two sections to it and it's about a five hour all in all thing. It's dependent on the person testing you, so there's no real gauge, but the first part of it is a oral section. So you're sitting in a room with them and you just talk. They have to ask you about specific questions and then you have to be able to answer them. So if you pass that, then you go on a flight test with them and they go through a bunch of maneuvers with you and they're all in a book called the ACS, which is the Airman Certification Standards. So if you are really interested in it, you can look online and look that up, but everything they're gonna test you on is available to you and you know what's coming beforehand so you can really practice and study and get ready for it. So the next thing that I'm really going to be talking about in this episode is the steps after the private pilot's license that you can really go through. So I'm not going to be going into all the specifics of the limitations of the license, but more generally, what you can do is after you get your private pilot's license, I can pretty much go to any airport I want, flying or driving, and I can rent a plane there. And at the rental place, they may make me go through a little bit of a quick check just to make sure that I'm going to be safe and I learn about the plane and know how to use everything on it because they're a little bit different. But I can go rent a plane and I can go wherever I want in the country. There are limits for how much you can fly in a day, but for the most part, those aren't going to be that big of a deal. So the biggest limitation for this license is... One, I can only fly on really nice days. So those are called VFR, and you need to have the right visibility. You need to have a high cloud layer, so the clouds just need to be high enough off the ground that you're not stuck going like right along the ground because you can't go through the clouds with this license. But another big limitation is that as a private pilot, I'm not allowed to take people up and take them to another airport or just take them up for money. So if I take you up, I'm not allowed to take any real money for it. So you're allowed to pay your share for the flight. So if it's a $200 flight and there's two of us on the plane, we can each pay $100, but you're not allowed to pay, say, $175 and I pay $25. So that's the real big thing with a private pilot's license. So the next steps for what it really is is practically... License-wise, you can work on a license that lets you go through the clouds. So it means that you're able to go flying on more days than you would otherwise be able to. And this is helpful because if I flew to Pennsylvania and a snowstorm came in, or not a snowstorm because that's a little bit excessive, but if just a, a bunch of clouds came in on that one day, I'm stuck in Pennsylvania now. I can't get back home, but if I had an instrument rating, IR, and that's the next license, an instrument license, you're able to go through the clouds and get home on more days than you would otherwise be able to. 
So that's usually the next license that you go through, but then after that you could get your commercial license, which lets you get paid for your flying, which takes away one of the big limitations of the private pilot's license. So those are the two big limitations kind of gone, I'll say. But those are the commercial license is a big deal. It's not a quick thing. It's a couple hundred hours worth of work flying and another license test and all that. And then after you get your commercial license, if you're still planning to go to the airlines, to become an airline pilot at just a small regional airline, you need at least 1,500 hours of flight time. So if you don't want to spend tens of thousands of dollars building that up, you can get the commercial license. And then another common way to build that hours is to become an instructor to get your CFI license. So you need your commercial for that, but it lets you teach other people how to fly a plane. So that's a really good way of building up the hours while getting paid for it. That's the most common route, but you can also banner fly or you can do some stuff with weather and other types of flying. And there's a couple ratings for it. So you can, so I technically can't fly anything with more than one engine, but I can go through training to be able to do that. And there's a couple other smaller things like that, but those aren't that important right now. All right, thanks for listening. And in the next episode, I'm going to go through a little bit more about the specific maneuvers and what you can expect on a solo.